Are you ready for good talk? Peter Mansbridge uh, here with Bruce Anderson and Chantelle Bear, and we're uh, well. We got lots to talk about today. Here's how we're going to start. Um, I'm wondering what some of this current discussion around the appointment of David Johnson as the special rapporteur says not about Johnson, not about Trudeau, not about Polyev, but about the country as a whole, because. Here we have the appointment of the guy who, up until about 10 days ago, was considered the most trusted man in Canada by an awful lot of people, if not everyone. I mean, he had an incredible track record, appointed by Stephen Harper as the Governor General in uh, 2010, at a time when that, that appointment was critical because we'd just gone through some issues around minority government, and you needed a trusted person in that job. And people lined up at the microphones to praise the appointment that David Johnston was the guy the right guy for the job at that time. Um, he's been in a number of roles since then, but has been applauded uh, in all of them that I can uh, recall, or just about all of them. Um, this is a guy who has 21 letters after his name. That's 21 letters after his name. That's not even counting the right honorable part before his name. So obviously, a lot of different people think uh, quite something of David Johnston. But in the last 48 hours, um, he's been getting not great reviews from the leader of the opposition, from members of the Conservative Party of Canada, and from a large segment, certainly of the um, conservative-leaning media, in both national newspapers, the Globe and the... um, National Post, wrong guy for the job. Sure, he's, you know, he's trusted, he's this, he's that, but he's the wrong guy right now. So here's my question. Before we get to the politics of it all, what does it say about the mood of the country that we're entertaining this kind of debate around this person, this eminent Canadian, and sort of talking about him in this way? I mean, let's let's remember, on the, the day the special rapporteur was announced, whenever that was now, almost two weeks ago, I, I don't know about you two, but I got a lot of emails right away saying, oh, the, guy, the perfect guy for this job is David Johnson. He should, be, he should be the special rapporteur. Well, I don't know. Maybe they asked him then, and he said no, or he wanted to think about it. Who knows how many different people they may have asked over these last couple of weeks. But it's got around to finally appointing him, and now he's a you know skiing buddy of the prime minister. He's a pal of the prime minister. He's on the on the Trudeau Foundation, the Pierre Trudeau Foundation, that supports scholars. And David Johnson was one of the country's leading academics. Anyway, enough from me, Chantel. What does it say about Canada? Or does it say anything about Canada? I don't think it says much about Canada. I think it says a lot about social media and uh, the time and the cycle of the current prime minister that attracts um, media scrutiny uh, that uh, reflects fatigue on the part of part of the media with uh, the liberal rule. I think if you went back to the way Stephen Harper was covered over the last year and a half of his tenure, or the way that uh, Jean Chrétien, for that matter, was covered, uh, including when he made that decision that no, everyone now is saying was so uh, full of foresight to not go to Iraq. Go see the coverage uh, in the same media uh, that you are talking about, uh, and you will find that um, the media coverage was... (laughs) Not to say critical, even more than critical. Of course, today, if you ask the authors of those columns to revisit the issue and restate exactly what they said back then, they would probably withdraw uh, and go on a holiday to avoid having to do it because they would have to eat their words uh, and their predictions back at the time. I think it's fair to debate whether there is a need for an independent expert. I, for one, Believe that uh, uh, it is the prime minister's uh, task to make those decisions. 
uh, and then to delegate the terms of reference of whatever exercises he chooses, if he chooses one, to an expert. That is, people compare uh, the appointment of uh, Mr. Johnston uh, to tell the government the way forward on the China interference file uh, to Stephen Harper's decision to uh, delegate part of the process to the same person at the time of the the the, the inquiry that uh, eventually was chaired by Justice Oliphant into Brian Mulroney's dealing with the uh, businessman Carl Heinz Schreiber. The difference is that Stephen Harper had decided there would be an inquiry and asked Mr. Johnston to draw up the terms of reference so that the, 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 the scope of the inquiry would be determined at arm's length from the government and from a conservative prime minister who was basically opening up an inquiry into one of his predecessors, a former prime minister at that. But when I look at mood of the country things, I, you know, a Leger poll came out, I think, yesterday, and they asked, because mood of the country is larger than the issue of Mr. Johnston being appointed. It also goes to the constant conservative message that everything is broken in this country. So Leger asked, which of the following best describes how you currently feel about your life overall? And this is part of a political poll that also asked, how do you feel about Justin Trudeau, Pierre Poilievre? Uh, how would you vote in an election? So it's a political poll. It's not a, um, do you think that spring will come early? Does that make you feel good question? 60% uh, they were very or somewhat optimistic. 14% said they were neither one or the other. And that left 14% to be somewhat or very pessimistic. Mood of the country, based on those numbers, not even the people who really want to vote for the conservatives and really want Justin Trudeau to not be the prime minister feel somewhat or very pessimistic, which to me looks like a, a message to the uh, everything is broken school of narrative. It may not match the mood of the country. And by the way, my last point, a lot of this is, yes, I believe, uh, media-driven and commentary-driven. And the fact that it is not attracting a lot of commentary, the appointment of, of David Johnston in Quebec, probably uh, is a sign that in this particular uh, bubble, the, 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 there are no real legs to, to to this discussion about who is doing what and who is a member of the Trudeau Foundation. And yes, I do hope we get back to the Trudeau Foundation because I served as a mentor on the Trudeau Foundation uh, about more than a decade ago. And I went back uh, to memory lane this morning to remember all the pleasant people that I spent time when I was a mentor for a PhD student doing a thesis on religious teaching in the Middle East. Well, you're... Uh... You're in trouble now. I don't know how you're going to get It's very public. <laughs> All right, Bruce, away you go. Well, I, I think that you asked the question, is it a mood of the country thing? I think that uh, it isn't really that. I agree with Chantal that if you step back from the, um, the inclination, if we just look at what traffic's on social media and to some degree in, in, in some of the um, industrial media or the mainstream media, you can get the feeling that there's a lot of anger. Um, and I, I think there's a little bit more anger than there used to be, but I don't think there's a lot more. I, Chantel talked about 60% optimism. My uh, sense of the normal optimism rate, because I asked that question almost always for 40 years, is in the 67, 68% range. So it's possible that it's down a little bit because we are going through a maybe a generation where the sense of certainty about the world is not what it had been for the previous generation, let's say. I don't want to go back two generations because I think it, I, I don't know what the numbers would have been then, but people would have been entitled to be um, discouraged or, or worried. Um, so what do I think it is? I, I want to separate out for a minute, if I can, the appointment of David or the selection of David Johnson by the prime minister from the question of what makes it like we can't have a reasonable conversation about a reasonable idea anymore. That to me is the um, 
is the more disconcerting part. I'm people of good faith can reasonably argue, did the prime minister make a uh, politically judicious choice or a politically injudicious choice, which seems to be at the heart of what uh, the critics of this idea are saying, except for the people who just think he's corrupt and he's trying to cover up his Chinese related malfeasance, which I think frankly is, it's a pretty small group, but it's a group that every morning wakes up thinking he's corrupt and has done something even more corrupt last night while I was sleeping. And there's nothing, no matter of evidence, uh, you could appoint Jesus Christ uh, to investigate the prime minister, and he would come back and say, no, it looks like he's not corrupt. He's just doing things you don't like. And those people would say, no, no, to hell with you, Jesus. Uh, I'm uh, no longer a Christian. So the the question of whether or not uh, Johnson was a politically judicious choice that people can debate it. People debate these choices in the bubble of people who follow politics closely. And I don't just mean the Ottawa bubble. Obviously, there are people across the country who get into this conversation. It's like a, it's a passion. It's an interest. It's good that they're doing it. It helps form our the bones of our democracy sometimes. But these questions of uh, political wisdom come go. We talk about a different one every couple of weeks. Uh, that's the way it works, and it's okay. And so uh, I read Andrew Coyne's comments, and I thought, I don't agree with those comments, but I I understand them. I think they're reasonable arguments. Reasonable people could, uh, could think about them that way. Um, so that debate doesn't really bother me. It bothers me a little bit that there's less uh, inclination. There's more inclination in this situation than I might have expected because of who David Johnson is and because of the question that we're talking about, which is essentially foreign meddling in our democracy. And should we be doing more about it is the first question, the answer to which is yes. And should we have somebody who generally has has acted with integrity? I don't say generally, who has acted with integrity and who has been seen to have acted with integrity should he be somebody that we say yeah go and look at this and tell us what you see yeah yeah all of that makes sense to me so what is the problem in my view oh, you're going to get letters for this i just want you to brace yourself <laughs> don't worry i'm already getting the letters on the jesus christ comment the and isn't justin trudeau a catholic so your comparison just goes to the same insider <laughs> appointment thing for the record Away <laughs> you go, Bruce. Keep them coming. Well, you know, somewhere along the way, the right went mad, and then the left went berserk at the fact that the right went mad. And I know that people on the right will go, we had to get really mad because the left was ruining the world. And I understand that. I don't see it that way. I think what happened is that right-wing politics found a a road to uh, money and activism that they had not previously decided was a road that they wanted to take or because technology didn't allow it to be found. And that's the second part of it, which is that the media today has to be separated from the conversation about journalists today. There are many good journalists doing good traditional journalism. The media enterprises are, in too many cases, businesses that are not really preoccupied with journalism as much as they are preoccupied with finding angry people, making them angrier, and uh, living off the avails of that. And I don't know how, and and I, I used to think, okay, well, it's not really the journalism enterprises that are the problem it's it's the platforms and the social media that sit on top of the platforms but it isn't that anymore and i think that's what uh really has been revealed to me this week you made the point that it's hard to find a journalist in on a, working for a presumed journalism company that can now say anything okay about the david johnson uh, appointment without looking like they're so far away from the mainstream of journalism that uh, they must be in the tank or something like that. So that part of it is broken, and I don't know how we're ever going to fix it. And um, 
It's not a criticism of journalists, journalists, but it is a, a, it is my view that a big part of what's wrong on this issue is going to continue to be what's wrong in how we discuss anything because we've lost control of the of of those media enterprises in, a, in control in the sense of do they function for us or do they function for themselves? So I've always noticed, and I'm sure it's the same in your business, uh, and it was the same for you, Peter, when you did the National. It's certainly the case that when you write columns, um, you write uneven columns. Some are really great and some are average and some are really bad. And that you always remember the bad nights or the bad ones a lot more than you remember the good ones. Uh, because... That's how human nature is. And when I listen to, to Bruce say it's hard to find a self-respecting journalist siding with the Johnston appointment for fear of passing for God knows what, um, I look and I say, but that's not quite true. I mean, Susan Delacourt writes for the Toronto Star and has defended the appointment before one rushes to say, of course, she writes for the Toronto Star and there are the Red Star. John Ibbotson writes for the Globe and Mail, and he has unapologetically endorsed the appointment of Mr. Johnston. And John Ibbotson writes for the National Post, and he has done the same. So uh, I tend to think that the point of view of defending the appointment uh, has been aptly defended in those three major uh, national newspapers, that the social media uh, battle has been different. It mostly has to do with the fact that with the notable exception of Brooks here, most of the people I have named were content to have that battle fought where they have their platform rather than try to win their case on social media on top of doing what they are paid to do. Uh, that is also my policy, that if I have something to say, I'm not going to go on Twitter and argue it with a small pool of people whose first uh, motto too often is bad faith. When I have readers, and I do not write for Twitter, I write for readers. They are not on Twitter. They're not spending their lives having these tweet fights uh, that usually end up producing nothing particularly interesting. So yes, there are people who are more prolific on Twitter. They often happen to be people who are of the same view that uh, Mr. Johnson should not have taken the appointment, that he should not exist at all, or that he is a bad choice. Add to that all of the conservative comments uh, about uh, uh, David Johnson, which I think are, are, are misplaced. I'm happier to have uh, a, a political party criticize the very existence of that role and demonstrate the need for a public inquiry than to have character assassination of the person who is tasked with making a re recommendation. That is bullying. What it is meant to do is make Mr. Johnston feel compelled to recommend the public inquiry because otherwise they will tear his reputation to shreds. Someone uh, said this week he shouldn't have accepted because he should have known he was going to get into that and he doesn't deserve that. My answer to that is if I live to be 81 and if I had a track record like David Johnson, I wouldn't give a damn what the likes of Pierre Poilier thinks of me. So Can I just, uh, <laughs> that's where I'm at. <laughs> I think that's all good life advice. Uh, and uh, it's advice I'm thinking about a fair bit, but I, uh, and, and I do want to say that Chantel's right. I exaggerated the point uh, unintentionally about whether uh, there were journalists, uh, respecting respected journalists um, in those media enterprises who were saying um, positive things about this appointment. Um, I think I was probably thinking more about the general tenor of uh, and the and the flow of commentary about politics now feels like it's more oriented towards can we stir people up or keep them stirred up, and in a particular direction more often than not. That's and I was trying to make the distinction between the companies and the and the volume of content that they produce that fits that lens. But again, we we might disagree a little bit about that. But Chantal's point is is a very valid one about those journalists who, who did 
um, who did speak out on behalf of the appointment. And again, my my point is, I think he's a good pick, but I'm less preoccupied with the quality of the pick and more kind of concerned about the quality of the conversation. And I I, I don't feel like um, it's easy to find a platform. Um, I don't write for a newspaper. I don't um, comment on a, on a TV show. Um, so sometimes those social media platforms are the way that people who want to engage in politics have at their disposal to engage in politics. And, um, you know, sometimes I feel like, well, I should probably throw some thoughts in because I'm watching this debate evolve and maybe it will be of some use. But in the end, it doesn't feel uh, like it's very useful. It feels like it only uh, stirs the pot more and creates more stress. And and one of the things that we measured recently was the different social media platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, um, which ones make you stressed? And uh, Twitter stands at the very top of that list, as uh, as you might expect. We're going to take a quick break, but let, let me just mention, when I opened the, the program, just, just on the point of the journalists, I, I did, you know, I was talking about two Papers, the two, you know, sort of acknowledged national newspapers. Uh, I know we can debate the Toronto Star, um, whether it's a national newspaper, but I was talking about the Globe and the, and the Post, and I and I said the majority of their opinion writers, right, that the field was tilted in those two papers towards being against the appointment uh, of David Johnston. Um, I, I want to talk a little more about this Twitter angle because um, I think it's interesting because it, we talk about Twitter as if everybody's on Twitter and uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty low really in terms of the number of people who are on there. But it does seem that journalists or many journalists, <laughs> be careful here, many journalists f- feed their sense of what's important by, by going on Twitter and, and reading other people's stuff or in, contributing themselves. I want to talk a little bit uh, about that, uh, but we got to take a quick break. Um, back right after this. And welcome back. You're uh, listening to Good Talk on uh, Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Uh, a YouTube channel which gets, uh, certainly in the last couple of weeks, has picked up a lot of views and a lot of comments. And uh, while there have been good comments, the bad comments outweigh the good comments. And uh, at times you get a sense, at least when I, the, the times I read those comments, that the people actually haven't even watched the discussion because some of the things they say have got like nothing to do with with what we said. Um but that's that's neither here nor there, I guess. But uh, other than to say that, you know, we do look at them. Um, Bruce, I want to pick up on this. I mean, you had a Twitter experience yesterday. You got into it a little bit uh, on Twitter. And I want to know, I think you've given us a hint already what you've learned from that. Um, but whether it's going to make a difference in the way you use that platform uh, in the future or w- what your advice is on it, because, you know, we, you know, you can get aggravated, you can get stressed out, uh, you know, looking at Twitter and you say, ah, I'm, I'm unplugging. I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it anymore. And every once in a while you see people who do that, friends of ours who do that, just say, I'm out of it. I'm gone. And then slowly <laughs> over time, they kind of crawl back into it. Um, but uh, Tell us what you went through yesterday. Um, well, well actually, uh, this <laughs> I like this conversation, but I'm a little bit surprised that you both think that I had a a, a different Twitter day uh, yesterday than I did. You lacked a life yesterday. <laughs> well, you know the uh, the weather kept me in a little bit, maybe, but. Um, I noticed that somebody had posted a picture uh, from years ago of me with uh, one of my daughters. And whenever somebody does something like that, I I think, oh, 
what the hell is wrong with people? Why would, you know, and then somebody else jumps in and says, you know, you never acknowledge your bias. This is terrible that you've been saying your opinions and not telling people your bias is. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, nobody, it's not like everybody needs to know the history of every other individual, but it is probably a reasonable thing for people to do to say, do you have a bias rather than look at you, you're all biased. And, you know, somebody just revealed this picture from years ago and that really confirms the bias. So uh, there was a little bit of, uh, of skirmishing on that, but it wasn't the more bothersome part for me. The more bothersome part for me was watching um, the degree to which the arguments that were being made about the Johnson appointment kind of descended into um well, they took two turns. One is that the people who opposed the appointment um, seem to be pretty easily buying into the the big issue here is the corruption of the prime minister narrative, which I really don't think is, uh, you know, it's if if that's what we're investigating, then for sure Johnson's the wrong choice. But I don't think that's what we really should be having a public inquiry about. If we have a public inquiry at all, I think that's foolish. I don't think there's anywhere near the evidence that what Trudeau was doing was materially different from what lots of other governments around the world were doing vis-a-vis China over a number of years. And so we should focus on the meddling going forward and which countries are doing it and what are the risks and and we need better protocols for sure but that should be the focus rather than than johnson and then the second thing was this is somebody who gave a substantial amount of his time and energy over his lifetime to do things that were in the public interest and uh, there just weren't there were people who were defending that lots of them and pretty um aggressively but also with a sense of disappointment that you had to. And I think this was your point opening up, uh, Peter. And so last point for me is is, uh, Twitter is regularly used to share thoughts about public policy and politics by 8% of the population. Another 19% say they occasionally use it. So that's 27%. It's not everybody, but it's not as small a factor as it used to be. And Facebook is even bigger. Um, if I, you know, if I compare that to the, uh, write comments on news websites after reading articles and columns, 8% do that regularly, 26% on occasion. So it's, it's become bigger than hotline radio. It's become same as uh, arguably or pretty close to the same as letters to the editor, um, and I, I don't think it's a very good, uh, I don't think it's a good addition to the mix necessarily. I think it's a, we've gone in a bad direction in many instances. I think it's a great revealer of character uh, and pro- political personality. So I, for one, find it very useful to look at. But um, I, I give a session at Queen's University at the School of Business on, on Media. And when I talk about Twitter, I, I compare it to a fishbowl. Uh, and in that fishbowl, all the fish that was interacting, policy purveyors, politicians, journalists to cover policy, interact. And over the years, it may be that it escaped notice, but the, 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 the sides of the fishbowl, which should have been glass to allow you to look out at the larger world, uh, have become mirrors. Mm. And we 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 self-validate, uh, and I say we in the larger sense because I try not to participate in in those tweet exchanges. But we self-validate our 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 stance in that fishbowl and our points of views by arguing and drinking each other's bathwater. R- literally, is what it is what is happening there. I think the first mistake not to make is to confuse Twitter with the court of public opinion. They are two different things. You talked about the field that was um, tilted in a particular way this week. True enough, but so was it in the old days when we fought the Charlottetown referendum. The field was tilted in favor of a yes vote to the accord that the premiers and the prime minister had negotiated. 
which turned out to be the biggest sinking of a proposal uh, in public opinion when the votes were counted. So were, to go back to the example I quoted off the top of the show, in the same newspapers, the field was tilted in favor of us going to Iraq. And Jean Chrétien not only won that public opinion, but he won it so overwhelmingly that the political forces that argued against that decision, and today is the anniversary of the day when he announced uh, Jean Chrétien, which is why it's been on my mind, because I, I totally remember that that day, his decision was received about as well as the Johnston appointment which means he took a hell of a beating in many of the newspapers uh, and the media that you are talking about. So the notion uh, that opinion makers, pundits, chattering class, at the end of the day dictate where public opinion is going, I think it's, uh, my, it's been my experience that it was highly overrated. Uh, and I, I understand why Bruce says what he says about Twitter, because I, too, sometimes look at it and despair over the quality of the public debate that we are having. But I don't blame Twitter. I blame some of the politicians who bring that tone to Twitter. Uh, I, for instance, have a lot of time for the criticism uh, of, of the NDP uh, about having David Johnston there instead of going straight to a public inquiry. Fair enough. But I don't have a lot of time for the character assassination that the conservatives are engaged in about a man that they appointed as governor general and were satisfied enough with that they kept him on that, in that role for seven years. So, you, so I'm with Bruce on the notion that um, even if uh, a perfect person had been available. He went to religion. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Apparently, it's not a good idea. But I don't think anybody, put in whatever name you want, I don't think anybody would have had a good week after having been appointed in that role uh, this week. So if you were going to make a choice of someone who was going to take a beating, probably uh, Mr. Johnston uh, is a fairly good choice. You know, I uh, I know Bruce wants back in, but I just want to make a couple of points. One, uh, on that last point, on David Johnson, I, I, I agree. I mean, I've known David Johnson since 80, 1980, when he was the, you know, he, he did the debates. He was the moderator of the debates in the uh, 80 or the 79 election, I guess it was. Um, and the last thing he'll be worrying about right now is the criticism or the that he's getting. I mean, he's, he's so past that he's beyond that um the the next point is is it 20 years now since that decision on iraq apparently <laughs> according to my radio program this morning yeah i mean 20 years man time flies and it certainly flies the older you get the faster the time seems to go i'll tell you that um, not fast enough with, for some of our listeners <laughs> who are counting our ears thinking will they ever hang up their skates <laughs> that's and, not what they're that's not what, that's not what they tell me although they do they're they're pushing this stay retired thing with me which I've, I still haven't quite figured out which way to take that. I'm, I'm retired now. Like I am retired. So I'm, st I'm retired as I'm talking to you. I'm retired. Um, but anyway, uh, let me just before Bruce comes in, I want to say this. And I perhaps don't say this enough. Um, the, the model on this panel was deliberate. We got three of us here. Chantel is you know, one of the country's leading commentators, columnists, opinion leaders. That's a given, respected by all parts of the country and all parties, what I can figure out. They all talk to her. They all want to talk to her. They all want her to <laughs> to like them one way or the other. Do I have to? Do I have to? They're very respected and, and, and in the journalistic community as well. Uh Bruce is not a journalist, and, and he does—you know—he he doesn't classify himself as that. He is a, an analyst, a pollster, a commentator. Uh, he's been involved in in, uh, in in the two major political parties. 
um, over his time and has very good connections still into uh, both of those parties. So good for him. Um, so this was a way of getting a, you know, a, a cross section of ideas and thought going into whatever discussion we're having. And as for me, well, hey, I'm just a, you know, a semi-retired pensioner. I just sit here and push the buttons on this little machine and, and let people talk. Um, so that's who we are. That's what we do. And we gather once a week and we just talk about it. And uh, we love the fact that uh, more and more of you are, uh, are responding to it and, you know, in one way or another are, are listening to what we have to say. Uh, Bruce, I can't even remember what it was you had raised your hand for, but I go for it. I had two points that I wanted okay. to make. Uh, one is that the in looking at how Pierre Polyev um, characterized the Johnson appointment yesterday, um, it's a good example for me of the thing that I kind of worry about in terms of this race for the bottom. Uh, he could have made a case, a thoughtful case, that this was not the right choice. Instead, he tweeted, Justin Trudeau has named, in quotes, family friend, old neighbor from the cottage, and member of the Beijing-funded Trudeau Foundation to be the independent rapporteur on Beijing's interference. Get real. Trudeau must end his cover-up. Now, you know, Chantal made the point that um, Johnson had been appointed by the Conservatives before, that Pierre Polyev served in the government of Stephen Harper that had uh, appointed Johnson. And obviously, if if Pierre Polyev didn't know that Johnson had a relationship with Trudeau, um, I'd be surprised. It doesn't seem like it's been a, a kind of a great secret that's been concealed or anything like that. It's, and so to see this characterization instead of um, here's why this is the wrong choice, it, that's a deliberate act. And what it does is not just, again, remind us this is how at their worst political parties raise money, raise ire, uh, you know, try to get people motivated against their opponents. But it it weakens our collective understanding. And this is kind of where I think I have a little bit of a different view of the role of Twitter. Uh, there are a lot of people who are younger than us um, who do not have the, the, the sense of the background that we have. Um, I mean, there are people younger than us who do, uh, but we have, we've been around a while. We've watched and consumed a lot, and we know a lot of the history of politics and the people and the way things were done before and the way arguments were held before. And, uh, and, uh, and I worry that there's younger generations for whom uh, politics as trafficked on the internet and social media platforms is the only version of politics that they know and that they will not, they will see that and they will go, huh, that's what I need to know about David Johnson. And they, they probably won't um, dig farther. They won't sort of find a, a, another source to say, well, no, actually that's not right. Or they might not. And I think that we used to be able to look at media as a, um, maybe a smaller fishbowl, but as uh, as Chantal said, maybe with the sides being transparent or you could find contrarian opinions. But I, I, I'm pretty sure that if you pick up a post-media newspaper or click on a post-media site by this weekend, meaning by tomorrow, there will not be, um, there will be a lot of that kind of commentary. Let me put it that way. And so I worry that we, uh, it, it, I worry that I, shouldn't take for granted that people who didn't grow up in the age of social media, um, you know, they, they may, they may consume this stuff and think that it is, it is fact. Um, and I, and I do think that in the, in the political world that we live in, the conservatives are looking for the last three or four percentage points of support, uh, to get them to, uh, a majority government territory. And those are the techniques that they want to use. And it's, it's disappointing to see it. Of course, that rests on the assumption that back in the days, young people read the Globe and Mail and all these uh, China interference story would have been read, which was not the case, or that they did not get their information in cheaper places that uh, basically ignored those debates. I, plus me, I find that uh, literacy uh, among uh, 
people, including younger people, is probably higher now than it was. Uh, I also don't think that the, the days when the mainstream media was divorced from the existence of the social media were days where people were necessarily um, so well informed about each other. And I am not going to drag you back in the Quebec-Canada debate that I covered for 40 years, <laughs> but where I discovered that uh, to be an expert in on Quebec in uh, the English language media was massively to do so without any knowledge of the French language. And where uh, to talk about the rest of Canada in Quebec was mostly the purview of people for whom the furthest they had ever gone in Canada was across the Ottawa River. So uh, if we're saying people were so much better informed and had such understanding of each other, let me refer you guys back to where the existing society debate. Yeah, that was yeah, great. You know, I, I guess uh, it was the really product of media. I'm not so, so much saying, I guess, that people were informed to a different level, but that the conversation about politics, it, you know, there was always um, harsh parts of it. But I feel like the harsh part of it used to be kind of 20% of it, maybe 30, and now it's 70 or 80. And so if your only exposure because of the generation that you were born into is the conversation that feels like everybody has to make win every argument use the strongest possible language to demonize or belittle or humiliate their political adversary, um, then it creates a syndrome that's hard to unwind. I think that's probably what's what's uh, worrying me more. And I see it sometimes in the context of people I talk to who are either in politics or thinking about running for office. And that's where there is a corrosive effect for sure of if you observe if you're thinking about running for office and you look at how politics looks on Twitter and you can't completely ignore it because your party will want you if they if if you want to be a candidate your party will want you to have an active voice and a, a significant platform on that social media it's hard not to look at that and say you know back to Chantal's metaphor you're jumping into a uh, into a cesspool or, a, you know, a, a situation that is going to probably go badly way more often for you than it will go well. And um, and that's that continues, in my view, to change in that direction almost every year. Um, and I think it's got a lot to do with the algorithms and the business models there. Let me um, let me just make one related comment. I was thinking of this as you both talked about the understanding for that journalists uh, have or don't have about our political history on any number of different areas, but sort of an understanding of the past when they arrive to cover politics in Canada. And that's usually, you know, an appointment to the parliamentary press gallery. When I arrived <laughs> in the parliamentary press gallery in the mid 1970s, I was part of a, a wave of young CBC reporters who were put in there to try and youthen <laughs> <laughs> the bureau, if there's such a word, and um, there isn't. None of us necessarily wanted to go there. Um, there was myself. There was Mark Phillips. There was John Blackstone. There was a group of us, and you know, we went into the into the parliamentary office with no knowledge or grounding in our in in political history in Canada. Zero. We were all kind of general reporters who you know, like chasing around the country, around the world, and suddenly we were there. And we could tell right away the uh, from, from some of our uh, colleagues, you know, from John Drury, Norman DePoe, uh, past ones like uh, Ron Collister and others who were like appalled at this move to these young people. And we knew once we got there, uh, and after we spent two weeks trying to find our way around Parliament Hill, which is not the easiest thing to do, we um, we knew we were going to have to do something, and we all applied ourselves to doing that. And I worry sometimes that the same thing happens not just in um, you know at the CBC, but in other bureaus as well. It's a good idea to bring fresh voices and fresh thoughts. Uh, into political coverage, but sometimes uh, you get a sense that, you know, man, they don't have any idea what happened like just 10 years ago. Um, and so it is a big part of trying to do these stories. And now, as you know, as you've both said, and Bruce 
especially there, the impact of, of Twitter is kind of like, or social media in general has become the, the historical grounding for some, for some, and that, uh, that's problematic, you know, to say the least. Anyway. Yes, I'm but there ready. is something to be said about uh, blissful ignorance uh, of how things are done. And I bring you back to uh, a debate I witnessed as a uh, not yet a parliamentary reporter, but someone who did cover federal politics from Toronto um, and the 84 campaign, uh, the debate between the old guard of the press gallery and the newer guard about how you should not report on John Turner's tendency to pat the behind of the women who was standing next to him on stage, including the president of his party, because that was not done. Or the even more fiery debate over whether it was okay to report that Brian Mulroney on his campaign plane was saying something about patronage that was the opposite of what he was saying on the campaign trail. Now, if you had not had young journalists who did not think that the way things were done uh, and the boys club manner of covering federal politics was the way that they wanted to go. Those changes, which I would argue were essential, uh, would not have happened. So I I tend to think every new generation of journalists um, provides or or changes uh, the way things are done on Parliament Hill. And I I truly think that while uh, you always arrive there with some adversarial feelings. You are there to be the person who holds politicians to account. And at some point you discover that the first step to doing it properly is to understand them. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, if, and if you don't like them, you can't understand them uh, because you cannot understand people on the basis of contempt or uh, the sense that they are uh, not, not good people because they are in politics. But, but I, I, do not think that the current generation of younger journalists is um, skipping the essential learning curve uh, of knowledge because social media exists. And I have not seen evidence of that in the reporting that I read in the, uh, from people who cover news. I'm not talking columnists who always have a fairly solid basis of what happened before and how things have been done. But I'm talking about younger journalists writing in the Globe, the Post, uh, CBC. I find that they do great work uh, and that uh, I will not feel when I finally stop uh, that there aren't people coming behind me who will do a lot better than I ever did. Okay. Yeah. You have to make this quick, Bruce. I got to take a final break and then we're almost out of time. But so make your points. I completely agree that if it sounds like we're saying younger or that I was saying younger journalists aren't up to the quality standards that we need, that's not what I'm saying. A lot of them do, you know, really great work. and, And some of them have to be particularly brave about it because of the social media context that we're talking about. But just to reinforce my point, there is a columnist for the National Post who's put out a comment that now says he thinks that David Johnson should be investigated uh, because he may be a witting participant uh, in a cover-up for Trudeau with respect to China. And for a national newspaper to decide that that's content that they should put out, free speech, I get it. But man, we've really come a long way when, when that becomes... Uh, legitimate comment. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these people who, who are raising questions about David Johnson and and the appointment in particular, uh, the, some of that is fair game. I, I, I've I found it fascinating over ten days. I haven't seen anybody say this is the person who should do it and make the argument why. You know, like where where are the, where are these alternatives that uh, they have? I haven't seen that happen. They've just been sitting waiting to, uh, you know, to crap on whoever the appointment was. But, hey, that's free speech, as Bruce says. Um, i got to take our final break and then come back for one quick round. And I'm not even going to tell you what it's about right after this. Back for quick final thoughts on this week's Good Talk. Man, that was uh, quite a session. Um, in the last couple of minutes, do either of you know what the, uh, what the significance of May 6th this year? 
Don't everybody answer at the same time. Golf tournament. This is reach for the top, but nobody's reaching. Coronation of King Charles, too. Monarchists like you, too. (laughs) Did you you expect us, the great monarchists that we are, to even remember that? Let me take you back 70 years. A hundred thousand. Were you there? You covered that. I was there. I was watching. I was commenting. No, hundred thousand people on Parliament Hill to celebrate the coronation that was taking place on the other side of the ocean. Guess how many were in Montreal, Chantal? I wasn't there. (laughs) Forty thousand. Yeah, you're not going to see that this year, sorry. No, well, I doubt whether you'll see 100,000 on Parliament Hill either. Um, but it seems to have been a bit of a, a puzzle uh, for the federal government to decide just exactly what to do on this, because I guess the country is somewhat divided on what to do about it. 30 seconds each on May 6th and what we should expect in Canada. <laughs> Don't really leap should. to the microphone here. We probably expect the person who draws the short straw in the, on the CBC to host some news special uh, that uh, if the weather uh, participates will be watched by few uh, and probably more by older people than younger people based on polls. The lack of interest in this event and this new king is uh, at an all-time high. Bruce. He's not an interesting character for most people, and he's trying to make the monarchy more boring. Uh, and it already was pretty boring as an idea for a lot of people. Uh, I don't, you know, he's not a particularly likable or liked character either. And I think that if you don't have a likable character and you're trying to take the pageantry out of it because it looks like a, it's expensive, uh, what have you got left? So I, I'm not unhappy about the way this is going. I think we should just get on with uh, what we know is the next step at some point. All right. That's it for today. I thank Politico for uh, some of the facts on the coronation stuff. They had a great little piece in there today. Uh, Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Chantel. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. It's It's been an interesting hour. Talk to you again next week. And Monday, we will be back with The Bridge. Bye for now.